Fired up. Radio. We're listening. Fired up. Radio. Each day presents us with the opportunity to fall in love with the world all over again. Each day presents us with the opportunity to fall in love with the world all over again. I'd say our odds are pretty good today. What do you say? Our opening words, can I get a volunteer to light the chalice this morning? Anyone feeling brave? As we light our chalice with these opening words by John Arupe, a Catholic priest who lived his life in solidarity with the poor. Nothing is more practical than finding God, than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. Fire Nothing is more practical than finding God than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love, stay in love, and it will decide everything. So how are you feeling? Has anyone asked you that this week? (laughs) I want to begin with a little body prayer. And I know some of you have done a couple, maybe a few. So it's good body prayer. It's good for repetition. This is just a little one here. And you can do it sitting, or if you prefer to stand up, if you'd like to shuffle around, you can do that too. And this one is, starts, it's basically just two motions. I call this one Gathering the Harvest. Um, I, I can't remember who taught it to me, but it was taught to me. So apologies to the, to the ancestors. And basically, we just call out a few things that we're thankful for. Um, and maybe now that we're coming to, uh, I, can't, I can't even bear to mention it, but the end of this week at Huckwell, and the beginning of a new chapter in our lives, maybe uh, we can think of things that we're grateful for at Huckwell, or maybe it's just in general in life. So would anyone call out something that they're grateful for? This? Sunshine. Sunshine. Care. What's the second one? Care. Care. Yes. Okay, well, we'll start with sunshine, and then we'll go to care, which is always a good way to start the day. always starts again. <laughs> So, what we'll do is we'll say, um, for sunshine we give thanks. And when we do sunshine, we gather it up, and then we give thanks to it. Okay? So, for sunshine, we give thanks. And now for care. For care, we give thanks. Something else? Trust. Trust. For trust, we 
bloodshed. For fresh air, we give thanks. Friendship. For friendship, we give thanks. Summer school panel. Summer school panel. We give thanks. Do one more. For life. For life, we give thanks. And the second thing is what we're going home with. So I want you to. I'm going to ask you to think of a seed. Now, a seed is something you plant and then it grows. And you never know, it might grow into something magnificent. And so I want you to think of something that you're taking home with you. It can be any of these words we said, friendship or life or love. It can be something very specific or something very general. But something that you are taking home with you. An intention, or you could be, you'd be taking home gratitude, or you could be taking home fun. Whatever it is. So when you've thought about that thing, is I invite you to hold your seed up in the air. Of what you're taking home with you. And then I invite you to turn to someone close to you or a couple of people and just tell them what you're taking home with you. And now I invite you, if your arms are getting tired, <laughs> to place that seed in your own heart center right here and just put it in here where it will flourish and grow into something beautiful so just put that right in there we're taking home so many good things you may be seated and now the children have a story for us so would you lead us please Why don't you make real honey, said Michael Bird, asked Michael Bird Boy. 
So now we're going to go back to the country and take us some of some bees. She sells her fur furnace and does it make real honey. White birds go white again, flowers weren't working anymore, and my little bird thought he could see the stars at and home at night. One day, the telephone rang. Hello, Mike, this is Boss Lady. I have a terrible problem. Your bees aren't working. <laughs> so, Michael Bird Boy went all the way back to Boss Lady's factory. She's waiting for him. Come inside, she said. Look, no honey, she said, pointing to the rose dirty jars. The bees are just sitting there buzzing. story was written in 1979, I believe. So let's, uh, we're going to sing our, our, our children to uh, their next chapter, but we'll hold you in our hearts and we'll gather together soon. And we'll sing together hymn number 98, uh, 98, Love Will Guide Us. Sing a hymn of love.
have you fallen in love this week? Even just a little bit. Maybe you had a chance to fall in love with nature, all the beauty that surrounds us in this special, sacred place. Or maybe your heart has melted for this community, this gathering together of diverse loveliness and wisdom. Or maybe you just really, really like the puddings. (laughs) I know I did. I have loved the theme talks too. Honestly, I think the four theme talks I've heard this week may be about the best four theme talks that you're going to hear all week. (laughs) So much truth, so much wisdom from our bodies and minds and our collective body as a community. From Winnie's powerful discussion of how our social body informs our impressions of our physical body of the seen and unseen scars of racism that affect us all, and how our ancestors' bodies and hers carry the struggle and the glory. From Eleanor, of how our Prometheus minds, always looking into the future and the past, always filling in the blanks of our experience, keep us from the mystic fullness of the present moment, which is nevertheless available to us here and now. On Wednesday, Robin reconciled spiritual idealism and rational materialism by telling us why he loved his fiance. <laughs> he really did. Listen again. And then on Thursday, Jen centered us in our belly wisdom, giving us a glimpse of what the world might look like liberated, liberated from all our dehumanizing separation from the body and into radical self-love and acceptance. Today I'm going to bring it all home with what I'm sure you've been eagerly awaiting for this week. Biblical criticism. Fired up. I wasn't expecting that response. but I want to tell you about my body and not just my own body, but the body of which I'm a part, the larger body. And I'm going to begin about 1900 years ago in the year 70 AD, more or less. The Gospel of Mark was written about the time of the end of the world. Okay, it wasn't the literal end of the world, but it felt like it in certain places. One of those unfortunate places was Jerusalem in Judea. Roman forces besieged the holy city, conquered it, and raised the sacred temple, the house of the Holy of Holies, completely to the ground. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered in Judea, along with many others who weren't Jews, but were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Tens of thousands of Jewish people were sold into slavery, shipped to Rome, where they would be placed in households or businesses and treated as common property, the lowest of the low. Now, this wasn't everybody's experience. Many in the Roman world, including many Jews and Christians, lived quite comfortable lives. But they must have been aware, vaguely at least, about the price of their comfort. They knew about the endless wars at the edge of empire. They knew about the commodification of the human spirit. They knew about the boatloads of people with expendable lives, the slaves up on crosses for defying their masters. And they felt, many of them, a kind of restlessness. A sort of Modernist detachment, for the Roman world was a very modern world indeed, full of amazing technological advances, a truly globalized society. And yet for all the incredible progress of the Roman world, there still was a feeling 
a feeling of disconnection from something deeply important. <coughs> Over the last 12 months or so, I've written a translation of the Gospel of Mark with accompanying commentary. It was honestly, a bit of a daft thing to do. <laughs> I don't actually speak Greek, which was kind of an impediment, even with the online tools. But I felt compelled, called, you might say. I took on this quixotic project for basically two reasons, I think. The first was idle curiosity, which is always a good reason to do anything. The second reason was, in the off chance, the vague felt hope that my research might play some tiny part in the salvation of the world. <laughs> we are sitting here this morning on the precipice of the end of the world. Okay, maybe it's not the literal end of the world. Even if man-made, or human-made, but it's patriarchy, isn't it? Ecological change <laughs> wipes out the human species, which is by no means certain. This blue-green ball we are sitting and standing on right now will survive us, as will, in all likelihood, several forms of life. But no matter what happens, life will be radically different a century from now. I'm no prophet, but I know that, and I feel it in my bones. And I know I'm not alone. When I think about the future in all its uncertainty, I'm worried. I'm scared. I feel powerless. And I feel guilty, guilty that I'm not doing more and guilty that I'm doing too much, too much driving, flying, buying plastic and then throwing it out again. I go a bit numb sometimes from all this guilt and then I worry that I'm being dangerously near being blasé and then I feel bad for feeling bad. I mean, I've been given every possible advantage in life, a, a white male, never been desperately poor, good enough upbringing. What right do I have to be a morose? And yet I feel it, this oncoming something. And I feel this urge towards hopelessness, even as I try to navigate the difficult shoals of ordinary everyday life. My kids ask for a second scoop of ice cream and I feel like a bad parent, but I remember they didn't really eat their dinner in the first place. And I'm wondering what to say and I'm trying to be the responsible parent and tell them no. And I also remember that the whole world is coming to an end and the Amazon rainforest is on fire. And here are my children that I have dropped into the midst of this future. And so my children have a lot of second helpings of ice cream. And thirds, and I'm not going to apologize for that. And as you may have noticed, I hold my children tight against the cold, which sometimes is all I have to say. I decided I had to do something about this feeling that the world is crumbling all around us, so I translated the Bible from the Greek. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Look, friends, it's all hands on deck time. We need scientists coming up with ideas and research, anthropologists and sociologists looking into the mysteries of human behavior. We need storytellers reframing our perspective and enlivening our imagination. We need artists and musicians to give us a new heart and new ears to hear. We need parents and grandparents and so many teaching our children. We need people building strong communities. Whatever you do with your time, it has a role to play in the coming great turning as Joanna Macy, the great ecologist and prophet, tells us. This great turning as our society fundamentally changes. 
So if you are an artisanal pickle barrel manufacturer or an enthusiastic collector of 17th century sewing needles, good news, we need you. God help me, I'm a theologian, a minister. In those awful moments in life, facing those immortal questions, when there's absolutely nothing that can intelligibly be said, that's when we ministers speak up. It's an odd calling. (laughs) My question for exploration in this talk is this, whether the book of Mark, a book of embodied understanding of salvation, written during a localized apocalypse, during the height of the dynamically modern but fundamentally unstable Roman Empire, can tell us anything about our embodied life today, during a climate apocalypse that is beginning to occur during the height of this dynamically modern but fundamentally unstable global capitalism. I think that it might. But even if you disagree with my conclusions, my real subject today is not the Gospel of Mark, but in how falling in love can help us save the world. Mark is just my particular path up the mountain today to that objective. It could have been Taoism or folk religions in Iceland or rugby league. But today... (laughs) Next week will be that sermon, so come on, come on back. Today, an old book will invite us back into our own bodies. The Gospel of Mark, as I said, was written during a time when many people uh, felt like it was the beginning of the end of the world, or at least the beginning of a new chapter. It was likely written about 35 years after the death of the historical Jesus by an unknown author or authors. The name Mark is just a guess. A sort of love letter to a dead man The earliest gospel is a biography of sorts, though most of the events of Jesus' life are left out, and chronological accuracy as well as historical accuracy were of little concern to the author, as any close reading will show. So what's in the Gospel of Mark? We might start by considering what's not in it. The birth narratives, which I can't pronounce, but you know very well from Christmas services, Uh, The most of the parables, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the woman at the well, the staggering, gorgeous wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as most of the Lord's Prayer, all of these are missing. Most shockingly, from a Christian perspective, is that the original Gospel of Mark is mostly missing the resurrection. Say mostly missing because there is an empty tomb and an angel saying, an angelic figure anyway, saying that Jesus has gone ahead of them. But there is no actual appearance of the risen Jesus, which show so shocked later Christian editors that they later added a couple of extra endings that you can find in the Bible today. It's true. What's notable is that while all this extra material from Luke and Matthew and John is undeniably beautiful, plays a major role in my own life, a lot of it is more intellectual and heady stuff. If you think of Mark as, a, as, as kind of a Jewish text and it's steeped in Judaism, that's a contestable claim, but there's, there's a lot of Judaism in the book of Mark. You know, Luke and, and Matthew, at least, and to some extent John, are midrash. They're commentaries on the, the physicality and the visceral nature of Mark. Small wonder that Mark has been minimized through the centuries by Christian intellectuals and philosophers. Mark was too simple, not enough ideas. But I think, well, there I go again, thinking. I'm a product of the Enlightenment, just like you, which is a product of that tradition, which Jen spoke of. Where's Jen? Sorry. Jen spoke of earlier. I knew you were there. Um, And I'm a born and bred Unitarian as well, and I just love to think about things. But let's start somewhere else than thinking. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, the blind man, stood beside the road begging. 
Child of David! Child of David, have mercy on me! What do you want? I want to see. Go. Your trust has perfected you. What are we to make of all these miracles? There are plenty in the Gospel of Mark. The blind seeing, the deaf hearing, and speaking unimpeded. Devil, demons, and vile energies exercised from the body. Now, as I said, the book of Mark was written about 30 years after the death of Jesus. It's probably not an eyewitness account. And it was written, as we know, during an age where medical science was not what it, what, what it is today. So if you want to be skeptical, I don't blame you. I have plenty of skeptical bones in my body. But we're not just talking about the mind here. We want to feel this embodied wisdom. So I'm going to ask you to risk something intimate this morning. I want you to take a close look at your neighbor's hand, if you're willing to have your hand looked at. And, and if you'd like, you can touch it, but please let the, your neighbor is okay with that. Otherwise, just, just take a look at it. And take a look at the individuality of it. All of those beautiful little calluses, bruises, scars, hairs, the shape of it. The ligaments, the moving of the fingers, the wrinkles. And notice how all of those little details somehow make the whole even more beautiful. In a particular way. Not in a general way, but a particular way. So I want to ask you something, having looked at your, the hand near you, and just a question for consideration. Do you think that this hand that you have looked at, seen, do you believe this hand of your neighbors is capable of healing the world, even just a little bit? These early Christian communities felt there was a healing power at work in the world. Maybe they needed to believe it. Maybe they were desperate. Life can be so cruel and capricious with aches and pains and regrets and woes, as well as the socio-political conditions of the Roman Empire. Maybe they needed to believe in the power of the body. And it wasn't just miracles that happened 35 years before. You probably heard about the story of the loaves and fishes, which is repeated twice in Mark. And Jesus' followers starting with just a few loaves and fishes. And before they knew it, they had enough to feed 5,000, 7,000 people. Vast gatherings. What's important to remember is that those stories weren't just told. They were lived. When early Christian communities gathered together, they'd share a meal. Not just a wafer and a glass of wine, but a feast. They'd eat together and, walk together and talk together and laugh together and share what they had. And they'd believe well, who knows what they believe, but they believe in a little more, perhaps, than they came in with. It's a bit like we do. His vegetable stroganoff, maybe with some apple crumber for after a miracle? Okay, maybe not. But it is good. And eating in community reminds us of something. That our bodies are more than just this sack of flesh that our bodies are held, nourished, fed in community, and that this flesh that we have is something beautiful and a part of something beautiful. 
We live in such a topsy-turvy world. As part of my ministry a couple years ago, I was privileged to spend a few days in Samos, a Greek island near Turkey with refugees from Syria, Iraq, and North Africa. We were part of a multi-faith, multinational, multi-ethnic group trying to help out, do what we can for the few days that we were there. It was a humbling experience. A few days was not enough to really do anything. Some of the refugees, beautiful faces, wonderful families, some of these refugees were so traumatized by life that they were carefully wary of saying anything to anyone or even looking at anyone. But quite a few went out of their way to thank me, which felt beautiful and agonizing at the same time. These dear ones had traveled halfway across the world sometimes carrying their children. They had risked death on an inflatable life raft with life preservers that were often fakes, sold as life preservers, but actually stuffed with uh, fake material and not buoyant. And what had I done? I was handing out toothbrushes, flown across the world for some awareness training at best, a Greek holiday at worst. I was almost ashamed to be thanked for basically nothing. But I was there. I was there. I've learned in my ministry how important presence is just being there. Over the years, I've had people thank me, say, thank you so much. And all I did, literally all I did, was be there. And I was there. And one night at this makeshift camp, there was a big storm. Huge winds as well as the rain. And a lot of the temporary infrastructure, this giant UN tent, almost went over. But all these littler tents were whisked away in the wind. And it was just, it wasn't quite hurricane strength, but I think something like 60 mile an hour, these huge winds. And we didn't know what to do. We were trying to patch up where we could in this little uh, makeshift port camp that we were at. And the rain was beating down on us. Somebody had the idea that we had some soup left in the kitchen. And even though it was cold, we could pass it out. Because if, if, whether people were hungry or not, you know, it'd be nice to have something. And it'd be nice for us to have something to do. So as the rain was beating down on us, I was trying to deliver these little plastic uh, styrofoam cups of soup with a, maybe a tiny slice of white bread. And I was making a hash of this simple and probably unnecessary task that a couple of the families started helping out because they didn't know what to do. So all of us were kind of going back and forth to the kitchen with these little styrofoam cups and trying to figure out how to hand it out and who wanted what and, and, and sorting all that out and was trying to make myself useful and mostly failing in this incredible wind that was making everything useless and just blowing everything away. And I realized in my body, before I put it into any words at all, that this is as close as I would ever get to the kingdom of heaven. It's a topsy-turvy world out there. Now these hands of mine are not the hands of God. Not on their own. I know that. I've never worked miracles. But do you believe? No, I'll say it differently. Could you possibly risk the belief that our hands together might participate in the healing of the world? If you believe that, if, you, if you're able to risk that belief, I invite you to just raise your hand. If you think your hands and your neighbor's hands... Fire up. We need to believe. You put your hands down. And I know I use peer pressure for that. <laughs> the word for faith, pistis, in Greek, is from... Trust. 
Uh, it's, I translate it trust. I think trust is a better way. It's holding on to something. But uh, did you actually know that uh, Pistis, uh, trust is actually a Greek goddess? Did you know there was a Greek goddess? That, see, you learned something. This is the Dan Brown mystery at the heart of it. <laughs> it's actually, the word for faith is, is from Pistis, who was a minor goddess, and is a minor goddess, um, and, and consort of Aphrodite. And she was the goddess of persuasion. And she was one of the helpers of Aphrodite, who, of course, is the goddess of love. So when Paul writes, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, yeah, faith, faith is, 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 is Aphrodite's consort, helping love along. <laughs> so you learned something today. They say this world might need a miracle to, to escape the worst effects of climate change. And I don't know what will happen. But when I, and by, on my own, I feel so powerless, as I say, but when we gather in the collective body, I feel a belief grow in me. And I feel this potential beyond my, what I can, because I can't figure out how we're going to fight climate change. I mean, I know lots of the facts and figures, but I don't know the solutions, all of them. But I know I have this felt belief that we can do something that's beyond my mind, because none of us have all the solutions. It's ironic, I think, that just at the time when humanity has changed the content of the oceans and the sky, has burned the forest and scarred the surface of the earth, just at this time that we change absolutely everything, there's a message going around that we can't change the system. Oh, it's systematic. We can't change that, I'm afraid. There's nothing we can do. It's all too convenient. Don't believe it. I'll tell you something else about the miracles in Mark, and then we'll move on. Jesus, surprisingly, is rarely anxious to heal people in the book of Mark. He did perform miracles when it was asked of him, when people approached him. And he often, interestingly, tells them that they have healed themselves. Your trust has perfected you. Your faith has made you well. But he's not there saying, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to heal these hundreds of, of uh, deaf people, disabled people. He's not really bothered about that at all. There's been quite a bit of important criticism of the Christian tradition from differently abled Christians and differently abled non-Christians as well. That says, you know, I may be blind by society's definition, but I don't really feel less than. I don't want to go into church and have people sort of pity me and say, you know, wouldn't it be great if Jesus would heal that person? Or, or when, when we die and we go to heaven, you're going you're to be able to see. Actually, this criticism runs, I already feel beautiful and as I am. I don't mind being blind. In fact, I can hear better than you can. And I have a beautiful perspective on the world. And I don't know if after I die, I would want to see. This is as, as I've, I've heard said. And actually, I think Jesus in Mark understands that perspective very well. He heals those who ask him to heal him. But he first and foremost wants to acknowledge that they are already whole. That's his main ministry. There's a wonderful bit where they bring up uh, a man who's paralyzed. And there's four of them. And I don't know if they're strangers or they're friends. I do a great midrash on this, but I won't throw it down. But they all carry this paralyzed man. And they're so anxious to get to Jesus. And he's inside this little house that they actually tear the roof off this thatch house. And they bring him in. And Jesus, I like to think he laughs. He looks up and he takes note of their faith, which is really interesting. Their faith. All of them. These friends who are carrying this. Who are so desperate to get this guy healed. And Jesus looks at the paralyzed man. And laughs, I like to think, or something, there's something bubbling up in him. And he says, child, your shortcomings have been taken from you. And it was folk belief that if something was physically wrong with you in those days, that you must have done something to deserve it. And Jesus turns around and says, actually, you know what? There's nothing wrong with you. You're cool. You're fine. <laughs> Later in the story, Jesus performs a miracle and the man could walk. 
But that's rather less important. So much for the miracles. What about the teachings? Well, a major insight into the parables of Mark occurred to me near a small chapel in Derbyshire in a town called Great Hucklow. <laughs> you may be familiar with it, but I won't, I won't bore you. I was standing in the field right by this particular chapel, and all of a sudden my hands literally started shaking. I was holding my orange notebook, and I thought, oh, it all makes sense. And my insight was this. All of the parables and many parables in the Gospel of Mark can be classified into two types. I know this, for, for, for somebody with an academic bent, this is physically exciting. <laughs> There's two types of parables in the Gospel of Mark. The first type of parables is all about the growth of seeds and fields. And you've spent all week, hopefully you've seen a field or two. As for the seeds that fell on good soil, said Jesus, some hear wisdom and take it in. Some hear wisdom and take it in, and it bears fruit. 30 here, 60 there, and 100 over there. In parables, Jesus invites you to think of yourself as a field. Inside your body, your physical and emotional and spiritual body, wisdom is growing right now. Even now, without you even having to think about it, something is growing within you that could grow 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. There are seeds of goodness and joy growing in you. The Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who knew Jesus very well in his writing and in his howie, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh writes, Your mind is like a piece of land planted with many different kinds of seeds. Seeds of joy, peace, mindfulness, understanding, and love. Seeds of craving, anger, fear, hate, and forgetfulness. These wholesome and unwholesome seeds are always there, sleeping in the soil of your mind. The quality of your life depends on the seeds you water. The seeds that are watered frequently are those that will grow strong. You are a field. There are all kinds of things growing in you. Kindness and anger and craving and greed and love. What will you water today? Jesus and Thich Nhat Hanh are both presenting us with a very biological model of what it means to be alive and to be human. We're just like the rest of life. If you look out at a field, we're just like that. The processes of life that we observe in nature, they are going on in us, too. It's fairly simple, but as we heard yesterday, this biological understanding of the human condition was quickly altered and suppressed in Christian practice into a mind-body duality. The second set of parables in Mark follow from the first. If we are like a field, what do we do about it? Well, Jesus, the answer is receive the seeds. All the other parables are parables of hospitality and welcoming. The reign of God is like a traveling stranger who knocks at the door asking to be welcomed. The reign of God is like a child, a toddler, with their arms open wide welcoming the world. The reign of God is like welcoming a groom in the wedding chamber with celebration and song. How we welcome each other and how we welcome each moment and how we welcome the earth, our mother, who is always with us. These will determine the quality of our lives. You heard Rumi on Sunday, but as he says it better than ever anyone, I'll say it again, the Sufi poet. Rumi, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Welcome and entertain them all. 
Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from the beyond. Treat each guest honorably. We are a guest house for so many different things. Every sense impression, every thought, and every person whom we greet, we have an opportunity to welcome. And we may not get it all right. Some of the seeds may fall on thorny ground, but so what? We have an opportunity. Life doesn't matter about that. So abundant. It's 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. We can make tons of mistakes, and still, if we are truly welcoming, there's going to be glorious growth. When I was young, I used to love rainy nights. Tucked away in my bed, I would put the covers over my head and just listen to the rain. And slowly, a little bit, I would just, I would look at a corner of the room and then another corner and another corner, hearing the rain behind it. And it just seemed enchanted, magical. It was my familiar room, my, my bedroom that I knew very well. But somehow with the rain in the background, it felt completely different. And I knew the fullness of life. Jesus says, whoever does not enter into God's reign like a child will not enter it. One way of reading this is that we need to retain childlike wonder to fully appreciate this world we live in, which is good news for me because I've never managed to grow up. <laughs> but there is another way to look at it too, which is that we need to welcome God's reign as we would welcome a little child. Jesus is saying, you think you're ready for God. You want to be religious, huh? You want to be spiritual. Let me see how you are with the littlest children. This is how you see God, by the way you are with a tiny child. So according to these interpretations here at Hucklow, either Thomas is closest to the realm of heaven, or Claire and Jim and Nicola and Jennifer are closest to the reign of heaven. Either of which I wholeheartedly believe. In fact, I don't really, in my heart of hearts, believe that President Trump, bless his mixed up heart, rules the world. He is something of a malevolent force of human nature that unfortunately we all have to contend with to some degree. But he's as much a prisoner of his own narcissistic impulses as the rest of us. Amen. <laughs> Do you know about gold? It feeds no one. But Thomas and Jennifer, that they rule the world, that feels true to me in a topsy-turvy sort of way. If we are going to save the world, we are going to need to return to our bodies. For too long, we have tried to flee our own bodies, our emotions and difficult feelings, our aches and pains, our fear of dying. We have distanced ourselves from our animal nature, from our bodily nature. Because we find it too painful to be here now, we distance ourselves in our thoughts. We have built cars that can go 100 miles an hour and more, and aircraft that can go 1,000 miles an hour, and we still cannot live in our own house. We have built a religion in homage to a distant God who lives above the clouds. If we are going to save the world, we need to return to the childlike wonder of being in a body. We need to have the courage to actually be here. Receive. Your body is a field. Notice it. Welcome what is growing in you. Welcome this moment in your life, which is not an isolated moment, but connected with the everything. 
We are going to have to learn to live in this body if we are going to learn how to live in, the, in our larger body, which is the earth. I'm not especially good at this. I tend to live in my thoughts much more than I live in my body. And life in my thoughts is a pretty meager existence a lot of the time. Oh, it's great when I'm imagining something or having some new insight. I do love my mind. But more often than not, I'm frittering away my life second by second in a distancing from experience of anxiety and fear. My mind refusing to be fully present in this moment. It's worth pointing out here that both of Jesus' metaphors for the reign of God in the Gospel of Mark are feminine metaphors, at least according to the way that patriarchal society has artificially created the gender binary. They are classically feminine. Receiving a seed and then growing something inside you, that's about as feminine on the gender binary as it gets, right? Including the, the, and the hospitality arts is uh, you know, included in that. So welcoming children and, and welcoming and, and taking care of and homes and all of that. It's the classic feminine part of the, of the constructed gender binary. Jesus is, considerably, is consistently subversive throughout the Gospel of Mark. We think of a kingdom as military might, an old guy on a throne. Jesus says this so-called kingdom belongs to children and mothers, slaves and servants. Then the last shall be first. It's a topsy-turvy world. Now, this is not to say that Jesus was a perfect feminist. I like Jesus a lot, so I'm tempted to do that. But Jesus was a particular person. And I don't mean to offend anyone, and you can certainly disagree with me. You can talk about this later. I believe, like any of the rest of us, as a historical person, or even as a, as a, as a part of the Gospel of Mark, he has his limitations. In the 18th and 19th century, many Unitarians, my dear colleagues, keen to stress their Christianity in light of the denial of the Trinity, emphasize Jesus as some sort of everyman, a perfect figure we could all aspire to. I want to sort of push back against that gently. If Jesus was human, then he was one person, not everyone. The particular personality of Jesus is strongly written in the Gospel of Mark. He's not really an everyman figure. Jesus is a complex but relatable young man, thoughtful, Brilliant, hot-tempered, compassionate, moody, witty, occasionally catty, <laughs> ardently trying and sometimes failing to be totally faithful. He was a Nazarene, meaning in the eyes of Jerusalem he was from the sticks, a bit of a country boy. And he was Jewish through and through. I can't say for sure that he was gay. Although I will say, when you look closely at the way he related to his society, the way he related to faith, the way he related to women, you, you couldn't add all that up and say definitely Jesus was a gay man. But reading the text and thinking in my own experience, uh, knowing many, uh, uh, many people of many different uh, varieties, but thinking about particularly a few gay men that I know who feel passionately about life and love and have had the experience and the bodily knowledge of knowing the heartbreak of not just not being reciprocated by someone else, but the heartbreak of the very passion itself that they feel being rejected by society. Well, if you read the Gospel of Mark through that lens, I can tell you it reads very smoothly. From that. <laughs> You're all bored of this Bible talk, right? Bible, Bible, Bible. <laughs> Even gay and Jewish, nevertheless, Jesus isn't perfect. Uh, <laughs> a Syrophoenician woman approaches him as he eats at table, asking for her daughter to be healed. Jesus responds, it's not good to take bread from children and scatter it to mutts. It's an awful thing to say. 
Here's this woman, Syrophoenician woman, tells us that she's not from that culture. She's actually of mixed heritage, Syrophoenician, and either an immigrant or a child of immigrants. And her daughter is hurting badly, possessed by a demon, according to the text. And so she goes to Jesus and begs for healing. And he turns around and says this outrageously xenophobic comment to her. Now, I can, stories are amazing. I can still feel the shock of what he said. And I, I don't know if it historically happened, but I, I still feel the pain in that Syrophoenician woman. Hoping for so much, feeling the sting of rejection. And the woman persisted. This willful, tenacious, courageous, this uppity, pushy woman, this patron saint of anyone who has ever begged at the tables of power and been told no and said no to that no, this woman turned to Jesus. She gathered up her anger and she told him a parable. Surely it is good, sir, since the dogs eat the crumbs under the children's table. I'd like to think Jesus was chastened by this. He said to her, go. Because of this wisdom, the demon has left your daughter. Jesus was a particular person, and from his particular, he said the wrong things sometimes. But he was willing to listen to women, which in those days, heck, in these days, is not as common as it should be. As for me... It's not just this first century Galilean, Jewish, possibly gay man that I follow. I feel like I've come to know this Jesus character, and I admire him, and I'm fascinated by him. But I follow the holy in the natural world around me. I follow the holy in Winnie and Claire and Thomas and Sue. And I bow before the holy. And Jesus helps me learn how to bow. Here, Israel, no one, no one rules you except God. No one ultimately rules you. Not the unjust rules, not the racism that ensnares us all, not the demonic forces of ignorance and greed. No one rules you but the source. And this source rules not by force, not by power, not as an earthly king would rule, but by the love in your heart. So in return... Love the loving energy that rules over you with all your heart and all your breath and all your mind and all your muscle. This is the primary instruction. And here is the second instruction. Love those around you as yourself. No other instruction is more important than these. It's all about love. We know this. And we forget this a lot. But our bodies, our bodies remember Let's have a song now. I wasn't sure about choosing this song. Someone told me once it's really about sex. Uh, it's on your order. It's a smaller print, and I apologize for the small print. It's by the great Cole Porter, immortalized by Ella Fitzgerald. But this is about more than sex. It's about how natural it is for all of us to fall in love. So let us sing this love song together. You may not know the intro, but you'll get
Now I know that song has more verses than it would be enough for, uh, but just think of all life falling in love at this moment. Life is falling in love even as we speak on this beautiful blue-green ball. And romantic love is just a part of that. Life is having a spiritual experience. It's not just human beings that have a spiritual experience. We're all falling in love together. Calling the crowds close together with his students, he said to all, whoever wants to come with me, forget yourself. Pick up your cross and walk with me. Whoever wants to save her life will destroy it. But whoever destroys her life for the sake of progress will save it. What does a person really gain to gain power over the whole world and yet have her own life taken from her? For what should a human being trade her own life? Who would be ashamed of me and mine in this generation of faithlessness and wrongdoing? A human being will indeed be ashamed of herself when she experiences the love of God and the sacred messengers. Now all this is very nice, but what does it have to do with climate change? Well, first of all, I think a time such as this calls for a fresh look at timeless wisdom. I know people sometimes say the old stories don't speak to us anymore, but if you look at Beloved or Game of Thrones or Wicked or Marvel Avengers, they're all the old stories we told. We love the old stories. We need them. They are who we are. They're a part of us. But specifically for the Gospel of Mark, astonishingly, after all these centuries, it still manages to have something of a countercultural message. Forget yourself. Give yourself away. When I think about the messages that society tells us, especially our young people, and a blink of an eye ago, I was a young person, a lot of the messages are about maximizing your life. Be all you can be. We only get one chance to be alive. We have to seize our opportunity and make the most of this one chance that we can. Do more, grow more, be more, produce more. Making the most of opportunities. It sounds so natural. But really, what could be more capitalist than that approach to life, right? Maximizing everything more and more and more. Even if it's altruism, doing more good in the world. More and more and more. It stresses me out. As my musical colleague Eminem sums it up on his rap, One Shot. Look, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or would you just let it slip? Now, I'm not saying this philosophy is bad or evil or even wrong. But I do find this sense of you only get one chance at not wasting our lives. And carpe diem, which I know is Horace, but it's in our own day as well. Tends to stress us out, even more so as it tends toward individualism. Every person feeling their own responsibility for capturing their own life, moment to moment, making the most of it. In this obsession with our own opportunities, we are apt to pay less attention to the exact same obsession in our neighbor. Absorbed by our own success and failure, we become lonely. There is a temporary fix for fear and loneliness, and that is consumption. We run to the shops to get the newest product to help us maximize our life. If we need to, we might justify it to ourselves, if we're churchgoers, by saying, I'm doing it to be the best person I can be so that others might benefit. It's because I'm a good person. <laughs> and for a moment, the fear and loneliness are at bay. We feel we're doing something toward the maximization of life. But really, all we're doing is contributing to the destruction of the planet. 
And the fear and loneliness soon return. So we turn our phones on, our little private worlds that we can control, our screens that keep us from the pain and uncertainty of living in our bodies. Now, I know very much this urge. It's in me very strongly. And yet I feel also I don't really want to be more. And maybe this is a midlife thing. I love my, my uh, dear congregant and friend, Neil Howard, said, you reach a point in life where you're not gunning for the best actor Oscar anymore and you're happy to be supporting roles. And I'm at that stage in my life. I don't want to be more and more and more. I don't, don't want to conquer the world. Thank you very much. I'd like to be less. And Jesus, I find very helpful in this. Forget yourself. Don't try to maximize your life. I'm so tired of this drive to be successful at the time. Who cares if you live an A-plus life or a D-minus life? Nobody's keeping score, at least not in the conventional sense. Now, if you think about nature in the field again, look how nature uses our so-called failures from growing roses from the manure and the dead flowers. And look also how plastic, arguably one of humankind's most versatile and brilliant achievements, doesn't grow much of anything. So don't stress success that much. To make the most of your life, be willing to lose it. Let it go. Let go of clinging to possessions and success and expectations and welcome this moment and you might gain the whole world. Now, forget yourself doesn't mean denying yourself every pleasure. Jesus was something of a hedonist in, in, in Mark and in other places. Nor does it mean forgetting our differences. Forget as if we could that being Jewish or bisexual or fat or black or poor won't drastically affect your day-to-day -day life. Jesus was a poor Galilean Jew all his life. He spoke from where he was, from his position in society and from his own religious outlook. But he was willing to speak to whomever was willing to listen. <coughs> now I know I have lots of privileges in my life. And I tend these days not to feel guilty about them. There's a tall stalk of wheat feel guilty. Well, if the tall stalk of wheat is, is hoarding everything for its own gain, that's probably not such a good thing. But if you're giving it away, none of us are going to last forever. So if you have advantages, who cares? Just give them away. It's that simple. Jesus invited us to have a relationship of trust towards God. And you know the Greek now, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Pisteo. Trust toward the universe. Trust. Do you trust this world that we live in? Now, it's easy to trust when we look at it from a distance, isn't it? This beautiful pasture out of the window, this green, this, this nature that we are a part of. We're a part of that. But think about it. Out there, as you well know, is decay, illness, and death. Out in the natural world, there is violence, cruelty, capricious changes of fate. We don't need to look at biology to learn this. Sooner or later, we learn it from our own lives, do we not? Things can change in an instant. Just how do we trust in that? And Jesus said... Trust anyway. Not because everything is going to go perfectly for you. In fact, you can be pretty sure things will go wrong somewhere along the way. We're just not here forever. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus predicts his own death often. While this may be a historical flourish, it's a safe bet that the historical Jesus knew, a literary flourish, it's a safe bet that the historical Jesus knew that challenging the authority of the Roman government in the heart of Jerusalem probably wasn't going to end well. But he loved anyway. This was Jesus' message. What are we so afraid of? What are we afraid of? We're going to lose it all anyway, right? We can love anyway. And he loved. And he died. He died horribly. And then the women came. The women came to the tomb for an incredibly bodily act to anoint 
the body, to put oil on a corpse, an act of deep mourning and deep love. They came in their grief. As Big Bird said, as we heard earlier, about his grief, yeah, I, I know I, we can still remember him, but I don't like it. They came with all these emotions and feelings, and they opened the door of the tomb. And these women, the founders of Christianity, came to the tomb, and an angel told them, Jesus is not here. He is already waiting for you in your lives. He's ahead of you in Galilee. Now, I don't know if this is a true story. All I know is that love is a hell of a lot stronger than death. The ones I have loved who have gone to glory are still very much with me every single day. You can tell me otherwise, but you're wrong. <laughs> I have been persuaded. And these hands and this heart and this body knows the truth. And what's more, their presence and their absence, for both are very real, their presence and their absence gives me a determination in my bones, in these hands of mine, to give what I have, give every fiber of my being right now to laughter and to children and to kindness and to good food and to justice and to these tears and to hope and to love. Give everything. We are part of a field that will receive it, even as we receive this moment. As the prophet and mystic Janis Joplin told us 50 years ago, I don't understand how come you're gone, man. I don't understand why half the world is still crying, man, and when the other half of the world is still crying too. I can't get it together. I mean, if you got a cat for one day, man, I mean, maybe if you say, say you want a cat for 365 days, right? You ain't got him for 365 days. You got her for one day, man. Well, I tell you that one day, man, better be your life. Because, you know, you can say, oh, man, you can cry about the other 364, man, but you're going to lose that one day, man. And that's all you got. You got to call that love, man. That's what it is, man. If you got it today, you don't want it tomorrow, man. Because you don't need it. Because as a matter of fact, as we discovered on the train, tomorrow never happens, man. It's all the same freaking day, man. <laughs> this is the day we are given. And it's not going to last forever. Here's the bitter truth. You are going to lose everything. All, the, all your fear is, 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 is right in a sense. You're going to lose, shed this health that we are, we are given and beautiful people around us and, and this moment, it's all this moment's already gone, we're going to lose everything, but there is another truth and that is that you flow now and forever in the river of love love holds you right now in your bodies through the ancestors, through the generations, through this community, love holds you now and it will not let you go, it holds you every day of your life and beyond so you can relax, trust that love, let go. Let go of your anxiety, your fear, your burdens, everything that is keeping you from, from for the fullness of living life in love. The field, the beautiful field lives in you. The field of all life lives in your body. All you have to do today is take part in this beautiful earth. Give everything away and fall in love. Let's sing. Blue Boat Home. In your sheets.
invite you to hand out, hold out your hands for a blessing for you. You're all very beautiful people, and it's a privilege to share this earth with you for a while. Now listen, I know it's a scary time, and a sad time, and a hard time. And I don't know what we're going to do, but I don't know what we're going to do 50 years from now. I don't know what I'm going to do next week. <laughs> but I want you, even so, I would ask you to trust. To believe in your bodies the reality of love. The reality that is beyond our thoughts, though our thoughts point at them. That is beyond this day, though this day participates in. Believe in this love that you carry within you. I need you to believe, for me, but more than me, for this body that we share, this body of the earth. Believe in love. Fall in love. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be successful or rich. You don't need to be healthy. Just fall in love today. Trust this love, and we'll see where that takes us. Amen. Amen. Back, back, back. 